Hey, this is Dan, just dropping you a quick line before you start this episode to let you know a couple of things. What you're about to listen to is one of the classic best of episodes of Assorted Goods in its older format. And by older format, I mean the sandbox and completely disorganized style that Assorted Goods was for its first few years of existence. Now, since then, the feed has been cleaned up and there's 12 of these classic episodes. And you should know, if you're a new listener, that these episodes are not really what the show is now. But they're still good and they're still worth listening to. But just be warned that if you're looking to get into assorted goods as it is now, that you probably want to go to the latest episode in your feed. Start listening from there. Throughout the episode, you might hear certain things get mentioned, like the website or the social media. Now, those have changed. So don't go chasing those websites or links after the episode. Go to these ones instead. The website has now disinformed.ca, CA for, you know, Canadians like me. And that's where you can find all the assorted good stuff that is mentioned in these episodes. You can find the source lists and additional information. They have all moved to there. In terms of emailing, you can email me now with the new email, dan at disinformed.ca. And if you want to follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, the new handles are at disinformeddan. And hey, look, all three of those are kind of similar with each other, creating some sort of uh, continuity. People tell me that's important. But anyways, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Assorted Goods. And then I hope you subscribe to the show and come along for the ride with the new episodes as well. And as always, thank you for listening and enjoy. The writer Ralph Ellison was once quoted, That which we do is what we are. That which we remember is more often than not that which we would have liked to have been, or that which we hope to be. Thus, our memory and our identity are ever at odds. Dick Rowland had been arrested the morning of May 31st, 1921, the day after he had a run-in with a white woman named Sarah Page in the elevator of a downtown building. Accused of assault, Rowland was being held in a cell on the top floor of the Tulsa courthouse. The whole ordeal was pretty quiet to start, but word began to spread as the day went on, with a little help from the local news. Tulsa, Oklahoma was a segregated city with a complex past full of racial tensions, and a state that's very induction into statehood had come after a century filled with injustices. Just a couple years prior, a mob of locals dragged a white man accused of murder from his prison cell, drove him outside of the city, and hung him from a tree. Now, Dick Rowland, a black man accused of assaulting a white woman, was being held in the same cell. Tulsa was a city rampant with crime, and was watched over by a police force that had done little to enforce the law, or prevent mob justice. The Ku Klux Klan had been on the rise nationwide, with a strong presence in Oklahoma, and Tulsa had thousands of known members, including members in government, and in the justice system. Meanwhile, in Tulsa's North End, a thriving and self-sustaining African-American community was embracing the ideas of taking control of their own destiny and defending themselves when needed. On May 31st, as word of the accusations against Roland spread across the wealthy oil city, there were rumblings of what might happen. Those rumblings led to a mob of white Tulsans forming outside the courthouse which led to a group of men from the all-black community of Greenwood to arrive in hopes of protecting one of their own. Tensions had been high all day, 
and as night fell outside the Tulsa courthouse, a standoff took place, and the messy history of a city, a state, and a nation came to a head. In an instant, Tulsa would erupt into a living nightmare, a day of unchecked murder, looting, and arson that would nearly wipe the community of Greenwood off the map. In part two of the story of the Tulsa Massacre, we'll try to make some sense of the senseless. The massacre, the aftermath, the lies, the cover-up, the lessons of the past, and the patterns that we can recognize in the years since. How our memories and our identities clash with each other, and how perception can mean everything. Coming up here in part two. Hey folks, welcome to Assorted Goods. I'm Dan, your guide through the story today. Thanks for stopping in for the second half of our deep dive into the Tulsa Massacre of 1921. In part one, we looked at the history of the state of Oklahoma and all the events leading up to the breakout of the riot and ensuing massacre. If you haven't heard that one yet, get on it first and then come on back for part two, where we're getting into the events of the massacre itself, what happened after, and everything since. It's going to be a big one, so settle in. If you have any feedback for this episode or for part one, I encourage you to reach out. I'm always open to some constructive advice. Find Assorted Goods on Twitter, Instagram, and straight from the source at assortedgoodspod.com if you want to get in touch. All right, no long rambling intro here. Let's just get back to the story and the stuff that's actually interesting. Now, I consistently got ahead of myself through part one, and I've done the same to start part two. That's that professional storytelling that you can only find here on Assorted Goods. And as I do every time, I've got to take it back a little bit. News plays an important role in our lives. These days, it's everywhere. I mean, this show is usually news, for God's sake. It can shape the way we think about things. For many, it's a primary source of understanding the world. But it's the angle that these stories get told from that can make all the difference. Tulsa's white neighborhoods mostly got their news from their two daily papers, the Tulsa World and the Tulsa Tribune both of which had had their own moments in the recent years surrounding events involving the local workers' unions and the lynching of Roy Belton, the white man who had been dragged from his cell a couple years before the arrest of Dick Rowland. On May 31st, the Tulsa World released in the morning and had little mention of the incident in the elevator of the Drexel building involving Rowland and Sarah Page, the white woman he had been accused of assaulting. The Tulsa Tribune, on the other hand, released in the afternoon, and by then... The word had spread, giving the Tribune an open lane to depict the events, which they did, and played one of the more significant roles in all that would take place. The Tribune, by the way, commonly liked to refer to the thriving Greenwood District as Little Africa, and in the aftermath of the events, many accounts ranging from local residents to members of the National Guard called in from out of town all pointed to the article run in the Tribune as a primary reason for the course events took. For decades, the article that was run was lost. In fact, when old Tribune articles were microfilmed to be preserved a couple decades later, the May 31st edition was missing its front page and a large portion of the editorial section. And in the late 1940s, the originals were destroyed. The contents of the paper from that day were hotly debated for decades, but eventually, evidence of the page one headline surfaced. Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator, it read, which itself paints a picture. But the body of the article described events in a pretty specific way, 
accusing Roland of skulking around the Drexel building before assaulting, scratching, and tearing the clothes of Sarah Page, the 17-year-old elevator operator, of which, of course, there wasn't evidence of any of these things taking place. And an important note here. In the context of the time, the word assault implied rape, making the depiction even more severe. And the depiction of black men as sexual deviants preying on white women was a commonly used racist stereotype that was often perpetuated by the Klan and led to numerous lynchings in America during this time period. Page, by the way, was described in the article as being an orphan girl working her way through business school. The descriptions provided by the Tribune of both parties involved would turn out to not be very accurate. In the coming years, it would become known that Sarah Page had a pretty poor reputation amongst her own community. As for the missing editorial article, the full copy has never been found. But again, accounts have stated that it contained the suggestion that Dick Rowland would meet the same fate as Roy Belton and would be lynched that evening, a primary reason that residents of Greenwood decided to organize and head to the courthouse. Once these inflammatory articles ran, the word spread quickly across Tulsa. And that's when people began showing up to the courthouse in droves. In the early afternoon, a few attempts were made to enter the courthouse by members of this growing mob of white residents. But the police and Sheriff Willard McCullough turned them back, not wanting another incident like the Roy Belton case. Nevertheless, the crowd outside grew as the day went on. By evening, it's estimated that there was over a thousand people outside. At the same time, with the Roy Belton case still fresh in memory, there was a clear fear that the lynching of an innocent man could take place that night. And as we touched on in part one, there was a strong group of former World War I soldiers present in Greenwood. The people there knew that the only justice they would get is the justice they fought for themselves. After holding meetings at the Dreamwood Theater and at Booker T. Washington High School, plans were made to stop a lynching from happening. In the early evening, a group of about 25 armed men from Greenwood headed to the courthouse and offered to assist the police in protecting Roland, but were declined and turned back. The police and Sheriff McCullough, though, continued to do a piss-poor job of handling the crowd that was growing outside. Minimal attempts were made to disperse the crowd, and as the hours passed, people got restless. Many were outraged that these men from Greenwood had shown up in their part of town to stand up to the white mob. As insane as it may sound, the mob of white Tulsans saw the group of men arriving to protect Roland as an act of aggression, a possible indication that Greenwood residents might attack them. Imagine that, starting some shit, then having people show up in defense and thinking, oh my god, who are these people coming to start trouble? Jesus Christ. Tensions were undoubtedly high, and anyone with half a brain could have sensed that something terrible might happen. Calls were placed to the National Guard before the breakout of the riot, but Police Chief John Gustafson assured the National Guard commander for Oklahoma that the situation was under control. A few hours later, as word spread that the situation at the courthouse was not getting any better, including false reports being spread of the courthouse being stormed, a larger group of armed men from Greenwood, upwards of 75 or so, showed back up at the courthouse, again offering their services, and again getting turned away by the police who assured them there would be no violence. Empty promises from city officials is just a common theme that we're going to get used to here in part two. Now after the police had declined their help, and the second group from Greenwood was heading back to their vehicles, a confrontation was started by some of the men in the mob outside. Apparently, a white man confronted a black World War I veteran, shouted racial slurs at him, and then asked him what he was doing with his gun. 
The veteran's reply was simply that he would use it if he had to. Next thing everybody knew, a shot went off. Many believe this first shot was actually an accident. But in just seconds after that, almost a dozen men, white and black, were dead in the street. And the Tulsa riot began. Over the next few hours, a sort of defensive retreat took place with the armed men from Greenwood that arrived at the courthouse, falling back towards Greenwood itself, one block at a time, exchanging gunfire with a mob of white residents pushing them back. But the men from Greenwood were heavily outnumbered. As the fighting broke out, some Greenwood residents got into vehicles and scouted the situation downtown, with guns drawn. White residents, as a result, began to believe the rumor that had been spread that there was an actual uprising taking place and that the black residents were coming to attack them. With the situation dire, the local police deputized hundreds of white men. Remember, Tulsa had a real strong Klan presence in the city. And now, all sorts of motivated and by many accounts angry and drunk white men were being given legal authority. Depictions of some of these special deputies included men who had a rifle in one hand and a bottle of liquor in the other, and who were told to grab a gun and to grab a black man. Now, well, I have to be open here. The actual language used there was a lot harsher and more clearly racist. But I'm a white guy telling this story, and I'm going to stay at least somewhat in my lane. In addition to the deputizing of hundreds of mob members, there were also stories of white men attempting to break into a building where the National Guard had their guns stored, but they were chased off by the police. And what was one of the only instances in everything that would take place in the following couple days where police actually stopped white mobsters from doing something. As for the National Guard, they weren't finally called until well after things had gotten ugly. Thanks to the legal requirements of calling in the National Guard, hours were wasted securing the necessary signatures from the chief of police and a local judge. In the meantime, white mob members rioted in their own neighborhood first, looting hardware stores and pawn shops for their guns and ammunition in order to take part in the ensuing riot. The following day or so is a slow, vicious assault on everything black in Tulsa. One account from a local white doctor stated that he had come to where he heard the initial gunshots to help and found a black man who had been shot writhing in pain on the street. Making an attempt to provide aid, members of the white mob stopped him from helping the man. Black Tulsans who were in the segregated downtown area were apparently hunted. Accounts include a man who was chased through a theater by a group of rioters and then was murdered on the stage. Another was shot by a sharpshooter while trying to run from one sidewalk to the next in order to find cover. Unarmed black Tulsans were openly murdered in the streets, and those who held jobs as live-in workers in the white neighborhood were also found, thrown out, and brutalized. These people being killed had nothing to do with the courthouse confrontation that had taken place. These were all just cases of wrong place, wrong time, and, well, wrong skin color. The fighting pushed further and further towards Greenwood, with a massive shootout taking place at the railway tracks that separated the outskirts of Greenwood and the downtown core. A train even pulled into the city at this time, and passengers had to find cover as a train was hit from both sides. Into the night of May 31st, and in the first few hours of the riot, black residents of Tulsa continued to be chased down. White people were even killed by other whites who mistook them for being black. White rioters also began to perform drive-bys in Greenwood, indiscriminately firing into homes and at anyone they could find. By about 1 a.m. on June 1st, the first acts of arson against Greenwood began, 
as small groups of white rioters made their way past the train tracks and into the neighborhood, shooting, stealing, and burning as much as they could. The night, though, was mostly filled with gunfire back and forth, and these small excursions into Greenwood. But mostly, further organization by white rioters took place, who were planning on taking these events as far as they could. As for the National Guard, they arrived in the night, but arrived only to support the police in setting up roadblocks and arresting any black residents they could find and taking them to large holding locations, like the local baseball field and the local fairgrounds. They did not, however, arrest any white rioters while the events were taking place. Why? Well, thanks to the narratives and rumors spread, their preconceived bias of things led them to actually believe those rumors that there was a black uprising in Tulsa, and therefore, the perpetrators were clear. The hope for most people in Tulsa, and especially the residents of Greenwood, was that daylight would bring an end to the madness. But instead, daylight was just the start of the worst of it. White rioters by daybreak were itching to cross into Greenwood and unleash hell on the people living there. There's one story of a car full of white rioters who just couldn't wait and drove right into Greenwood before the break of dawn. Their car was later found in the street, filled with bullet holes, and the bodies of the men who were in it. Many of the residents of Greenwood began to prepare to protect their businesses, themselves, and their families. Many more decided to leave town entirely. At daybreak, a siren sounded across the city, and an invasion began of Greenwood. The people there fought hard to protect their community. Seasoned war veterans and armed residents took up defensive positions and picked off rioters, but they were simply outnumbered and overwhelmed. White rioters invaded from all angles, and eventually, building by building, block by block, Greenwood was looted for items big and small, and then one by one lit on fire with oil and torches. Residents were forced from their businesses and into the streets, while their life's work was stolen, and they themselves were marched to be imprisoned. Any resistance was met with a killing, and there was absolutely resistance. Greenwood didn't burn without a fight, and later on, accounts from war veterans who survived the massacre described the scene as being reminiscent of the invasion of France and Belgium by the Germans in the First World War. These men fired upon the white mob invading their community, killing dozens along the way, but it was simply too much. The numbers were just overwhelming. The lack of police and National Guard intervention and, well, the practical support they gave by exclusively arresting and detaining black residents only made the events of the massacre worse. Some accounts even indicate that men in uniform helped set the fires that would burn Greenwood. There's an old saying, some network forces are the same that burn crosses, and the story of Tulsa is a living example of that. It wasn't just the mob moving door-to-door -door killing and looting. Local residents went to a nearby airfield and got their planes, yes, planes, in 1921, and then flew them over Greenwood, dropping explosives. Now, this is a spot where the accounts vary, and are even contested by some. But the variations include stories of dynamite and firebombs to barrels of turpentine being dropped on buildings, while others simply state that guns were shot into the crowds below. Accounts from after the massacre do describe this air raid, including from a local lawyer named Bert Colbert Franklin, who described the scene as follows, quote, Lurid flames roared and belched and licked their forked tongues into the air. Smoke ascended the sky in thick, black volumes, and admitted all, the planes, now a dozen or more in number, still hummed and darted here and there with the agility of natural birds in the air. Now why would the air raid of Greenwood be effective? 
That's because the buildings in the district may have had brick fronts, but they had wood roofs. And the aerial assault would have capitalized on that by burning some of the largest buildings in Greenwood from the top down. Just to stop for a second and process this. Just think about it. An air raid was launched on one part of Tulsa by another part of Tulsa. Comprehend wherever you live, being bombed from the sky by people who live a matter of blocks away. That was the Tulsa Massacre. And it's the only recorded incident in American history of Americans dropping bombs on an American city. The accounts from the World War I veterans were right. This really was a warlike invasion of this community. Now look, the accounts of what took place during the massacre are beyond awful. Honestly, it's tough to find the right words to describe these events. And I couldn't possibly sit here and go through each and every horrific thing that happened. But there are stories, and there are a lot of them, including an elderly couple in Greenwood being murdered in their beds before their home was burned. Five black men who were trapped inside a house and then burned alive. A nationally renowned black surgeon who had already been taken captive and was being escorted to the local fairgrounds when he was shot in the head. Just to make note here, all of White Tulsa was not on board with what was going on. But at the time, most were not sure what exactly was taking place. And regardless, the mob at this point was not going to be stopped. During the burning of Greenwood, apparently a local white resident called the authorities to let them know that part of Greenwood could be saved if the National Guard could get there in time. But they didn't. Or really, they didn't try, and the wealthiest residential streets in Greenwood were then looted and burned as well. To be frank, the more you read into the massacre, the more absolutely fucking shameful stories you find. Those who weren't senselessly murdered or wounded were, as I said before, captured and detained at the local fairgrounds, the baseball field, and at a couple other locations in town, where they would be forced to remain while the white rioters remained unchecked in their looting and violence. (sighs) I don't know, man. I know, this is a lot to process. And believe me, it was a lot to process just researching it. Oh, geez, poor Dan. Yeah, I know. Even after poring over all the evidence, it still feels like an unbelievable story. And yet, totally believable. For a moment here, I get why people hate hearing about big, terrible things. Whether it's a story like this, or when we talk about something like climate change destroying the planet, or any major tragedy. It's not that we can't take hearing about these things. I mean, look how popular murder mysteries and true crime podcasts are. But when they get real big, it seems to just do something to our brains. It's like an overload exhausting. I actually stopped writing one night after finishing this part of the story because I actually felt exhausted by it. But I guess that's the point. Yeah, it's a lot to process, but we have to face it. You can't run from these things, you know? Ignoring a problem doesn't simply make it go away. I mean, have you ever seen that work before? Greenwood was burned. People who had done nothing were murdered by the dozens, and those who survived had lost everything. This really did happen on American soil, in a major American city. There were fucking drive-bys and planes dropping bombs, for Christ's sake. This really wasn't that long ago. Phew. Okay. This feels like it's the right time to take the first break of the episode. This is a long one, and there's still a lot to get to, and a lot to process, so a little music should be a nice chance for a breather. We'll take a moment, and on the other side, the aftermath 
and how the city dealt with the nightmare that had just taken place. We'll be back in a moment. Trouble, Lord, trouble. Trouble is all I see. Trouble, I see trouble. Trouble is all I see. Yes, you know I ain't got nobody Would you care for me? This was the strategy, if you will, of how to deal with these communities, with these successful black communities. The effects were uh, disastrous. When the smoke cleared in the early morning of June 1st, 1921, Black Wall Street lay in ruins. This is by far the largest single incident of racial violence in all of American history. By the time things began to settle down, if you can even call it that, 35 square blocks were burned to the ground, while over a thousand of the businesses and residences just gone. The community that had been built and the economic success that had been created, literally just about every piece of it was erased. Hundreds were injured or killed, over 5,000 black residents, about half of Tulsa's African-American population, were rounded up and held in detention camps. 8,000 people were now homeless as well. The massacre and destruction really only stopped because there wasn't a whole lot left to destroy. Greenwood was ashes, and every black resident who was found had been rounded up. In the aftermath of the massacre, the Red Cross arrived to provide relief to the former Greenwood residents, who were now being held as prisoners in what could easily be described as concentration camps. Still a mystery how the Nazis got a little inspiration from America? How many people were killed throughout the events on May 31st and June 1st, 1921, is something that, to this day, is still not known. Official counts in the days varied from a couple dozen up to about a hundred and beyond. Some stated 90 black Tulsans and 10 whites. Some said 68 black and 9 white. Some said less than 50 people killed total. Over 175, less than 100. There really was nothing concrete. The problem was, nobody was able to truly take count. The Red Cross wasn't able to get an accurate reading either. Their records show that hundreds had been treated at hospitals, and countless wounded were treated in the camps for the following three months or so. Makeshift hospitals were built all over, including Booker T. Washington High School, which somehow wasn't destroyed in the riot, and was converted in order to treat the wounded residents of Greenwood. Dozens of white people were also wounded and treated in hospitals but apparently didn't want to give their names out of fear of facing legal consequences for their participation. There was also the fact that the city was now in control of the National Guard and the police, who had declared martial law and aimed to keep any more violence from taking place. Just a note here, and this is me inputting my own perspective a bit, but 
Perhaps one of the reasons there was no accurate body count was because, with Black Tolson's all imprisoned, the people left to do the counting were likely many of the same people who had done the killing. One could assume that keeping things hush was in their interest. There were eyewitness accounts of piles of bodies being loaded into the backs of trucks and packed into boxes. Years after the massacre, a white man came forward and gave his account, stating that although at the time he was just a boy, in the coming days afterwards he witnessed white Tulsans burying dozens of black Tulsans in mass graves in a local graveyard. He also claimed to have looked inside some boxes on a truck and found bodies loaded in them. Other accounts indicate that some bodies were thrown into the Arkansas River, some were cremated in an incinerator, and some were apparently loaded onto trains out of town, and then who knows what. The records of doctors, hospitals, and mortuaries are all messy, and oftentimes missing information, likely a result of the sheer volumes of wounded people. Think about it. A small-scale war had taken place in the city. The healthcare system was likely not able to worry so much about the administrative side of things. The local commander of the National Guard had also outlawed any funerals for any residents in the days following the massacre, adding yet another piece to the puzzle in attempting to count the dead. After almost a century, the body count is now estimated to be over 300 people, but again there remains no certainty, just a patchwork of first and second-hand accounts, records and documents such as death certificates, medical records, news clippings, police reports, basically anything and everything that could be found. The estimates are best guesses, but there is an agreement now that the number is far higher than the reports of the time, and that at least 300 appears to be closer to the truth than any other estimate. Once the massacre was over, the city somewhat snapped out of its insanity, and from what I can tell, Tulsa seemed to move forward in a bit of a haze. Something terrible had happened, and residents of both races couldn't seem to wrap their heads around it all. A sentiment that would basically be how the locals dealt with the tragedy for decades, and really, some still do today, but we'll get back to that later. Black Tulsans were imprisoned, the people who had been victims of an all-out assault and destruction of their homes and businesses were now in detention camps under armed guards, pretty much the literal definition of adding insult to injury. One man who was there described the scene stating that the people who were being held were being herded like cattle because, as it turns out, after a few days, all the imprisoned residents were moved to the fairgrounds where many were literally housed in cattle and hog pens. Wounded people were left without medical attention for hours. Doctors began to be concerned of the sanitary conditions. Almost 2,000 vaccinations were issued during the first few days to stop the spread of diseases. For the first week, black residents were only allowed to leave the camp with a white escort or with assurance from a white employer. Black men in the camp were put to work repairing roads under the supervision of the National Guard. Black residents were also forbidden from buying weapons or from sharing residences in the white neighborhoods. There was really no leniency. And remember, these were the victims. This was a case of the police and National Guard keeping the peace by keeping black Tulsans locked away in a twisted, for-your-own-good kind of philosophy. In the following weeks, highways into the city were still blocked as the false rumor of a black counterattack on the city kept white Tulsans afraid. The Red Cross continued to provide assistance and meals, but their resources were stretched thin. After a couple days, only those with no money or jobs were given aid for free. Residents who still held jobs in white neighborhoods had to pay. There were efforts within Tulsa and beyond to help as well, but these efforts were not without their bullshittery, 
local white charities and church groups provided aid out of their supposed goodness of heart, but then simultaneously blamed the massacre on the black population, citing racist stereotypes of black men specifically for being what caused the outbreak of violence. Black organizations across the country also raised funds and pitched in what they could. A group of nurses in New York sent boxes of clothing, and the NAACP, along with other African-American organizations, raised money across the country to provide aid and supplies. As for Tulsa itself, on June 2nd, a commission was formed to make plans for relief and reparations for the damage done. A report was sent to the press, indicated that all efforts would be made to make things right. But that aid and those actions would never end up matching their statements. Now's your chance to put on your surprised face. Just a few days later, local officials, all white by the way, decided that there would be no further financial aid provided, and that it would be up to the Red Cross to do whatever they can. No outside donations would be accepted either. Basically, there would be no financial relief to help rebuild Greenwood. The Chicago Tribune newspaper had apparently offered $1,000 for relief efforts, as had many other groups across the country. But local officials in Tulsa told them all the same thing, that Tulsans were responsible for this disaster, and by God, it would be Tulsans themselves who would fix it. Except they wouldn't. Now, within a few weeks of the riot, black residents secured their releases and left the camp. But they were required to then have green cards, which meant that they were cleared to move around the city. And anyone found without one was sent back to the detention camp. Eventually, the camps were emptied altogether, and residents were released to attempt to rebuild what they could. But there wasn't a whole lot left to rebuild, and there was no relief coming to help them rebuild it either. Many families would leave Tulsa and never return. Some would leave and come back months later. People returned to their homes to find nothing but ashes. Hundreds of tents would be built in the coming months, although even that effort was met with problems from local authorities, and these tents were far from enough. Winter in Tulsa is cold, and Greenwood residents now had no solid walls around them with the cold months incoming. The Red Cross would be providing relief well into December of 1921, and tents were all that many residents had throughout the winter. It just kept getting worse. I just... You know, it seems like the pure hatred that some folks can have for certain groups is literally unimaginable to me. I don't know. Maybe I just had some good parents growing up, but you can dislike someone. Sure, shit happens. People are dicks. But to hate massive groups through and through, men, women, children, people you have absolutely no personal knowledge of to this extent? Not just slaughtering and looting and burning at will, but then keeping the boot on them, making it a struggle to recover or to rebuild. Like it's not enough to take everything. Fuck. Again, I know, I'm getting a little off the tracks. But as for some of the numbers, the damage to property and the loss of personal wealth within the community of Greenwood was estimated to be about $2.5 million, which today would be worth about $35 million. Just for the hypothetical purposes, had Greenwood been able to exist as it had and developed up to today, it's believed the community's worth would be in the tens of billions now. Both black and white residents lost property in the massacre and would file claims for compensation. Over 100 claims would be filed, and none of them would be successful. Even the white owner of a hotel that was burned got his claim denied. The insurance company apparently had a clause that excluded paying for damage as a result of a riot. How convenient. 
Hospitals also billed the police department thousands of dollars for the cost of the care they provided, some of which was actually paid out. For Greenwood residents, though, hardly any compensation was ever received, and in fact, in the first couple weeks of June following the massacre, there was a lot of bureaucratic red tape in the way of getting some sort of compensation. That commission I mentioned a moment ago, the lying one that said one thing and then did the other, well, they also initiated a, quote, real estate exchange, which would appraise the area of Greenwood and set prices to buy the owned land, at much lower prices, of course. As for residents looking to rebuild, there was also the problem of, how do you rebuild a community if all your wealth has been stolen? Many took loans from out of town, and in a bit of a dark twist of irony, Greenwood actually didn't have its own bank. Black residents who had savings in a bank had those savings in the banks in the white neighborhoods. So, just a bit of wealth was actually held on to. Had Greenwood actually built its own bank, it's probably a home-run guarantee that it would have been picked clean and then likely burned to the ground as well. The rebuilding process was a struggle, and this is where we see the truly shit-headed side of Tulsa's local government at the time. You see, there was a reason why there was a concerted effort to make rebuilding Greenwood a serious pain in the ass. Prior to the massacre, efforts were in the works to move most of Greenwood further to the north, relocating residents in order to make way for an expansion of the local railway system. Jeez, people of color being relocated to make space for expansion might as well have been on the Oklahoma state flag at this point in history. Sorry, Oklahoma. Well, not really that sorry. And in the aftermath of the burning of Greenwood, some more devious shit took place. A subcommittee had been tasked with looking at the situation and making a recommendation on how to proceed, which they did, and in which they stated that the residents of Greenwood were in a dire situation and needed to be permitted to rebuild on their land immediately. A bit of a shocker. They actually sympathized with the people of Greenwood. And in turn, that recommendation was, can you guess? Yep, rejected. Of course it was. Why? Well, you see, on June 7th, less than a week after the massacre, a bylaw was passed called Fire Ordinance 2156. The basis of the law was to bring a large section of Greenwood into the fold under the city's fire code, which it hadn't been before. Yeah, now they cared about fire safety. A little fucking late, don't you think? Now, under this new bylaw, buildings under the fire code would have to be built from brick, concrete, or steel, and be at least two stories high, the type of construction that is costly in a neighborhood that was left with barely enough resources to build tents. The same suggestion from before the riot was also made here as well, that Greenwood's residents simply be moved further north and east while that area was repurposed. So essentially, the bylaws aimed to make it impossible to rebuild Greenwood, and a system was also set up to buy properties there at low prices. Seems fishy? Well, that's because it absolutely is. Now, that's not totally evidence-based. That's just me piecing the obvious together that white and wealthy Tulsans who wanted to bulldoze Greenwood before the riot saw a great chance to do so afterwards. This scheme was shaky to start, as it turns out. Many black property owners simply did not have any interest in selling. It was clear what the city was trying to do as well, really. Lawsuits were filed by property owners who wanted to begin building and could not meet the requirements of the fire ordinance. Thankfully, the black law firm of P.A. Chappelle, I.H. Spears, and B.C. Franklin fought the ordinance and on behalf of the landowners, won, 
as judges declared that the ordinance was a roundabout way to take private property from landowners without due process. Fuck's sakes, the law actually worked here. Small consolation, though. Slowly but surely, Greenwood began to rebuild. By the summer of 1922, most properties that were destroyed had wood buildings built back on them. But the community was irreversibly set back. And as for who rebuilt Greenwood, it was the same as who built it in the first place. The black residents once again took care of themselves and rebuilt their own community. I guess local officials were right. Tulsans burned Greenwood, and Tulsans would rebuild it themselves. Except it was the white Tulsans who did the burning, and it was the black Tulsans who did the rebuilding. A couple decades later, Greenwood would be mostly rebuilt, but wouldn't experience the same success that it had in the 1910s. What about the justice side of all this? You know, holding people accountable for the slaughter of hundreds, the looting and burning of homes. Jeez, Dan, that seems important. Why haven't you touched on that already? Want to take another guess? Well, remember how I've been saying through part one and part two about the importance of narrative? Remember the rumors of a black uprising, black counterattacks against the city, the angry armed men who arrived at the courthouse to start trouble? The perception of events was clear in the days and the weeks afterwards. The Tulsa massacre was the fault of armed and aggressive black men from Greenwood who came to start trouble outside the courthouse. It was a fault of the black newspapers who riled their people up through propaganda to carry out an attack on the innocent do-gooders of white Tulsa. The Tulsa Tribune and Tulsa World, the white papers, played their roles as well, as they usually did, pointing the finger at black residents as being the cause. And that was basically it. White Tulsans thought that the black Tulsans got what they deserved for starting trouble, and from city officials to officers of the court, the sentiment was pretty much the same. Let's try a little thought experiment here, shall we? Bear with me on this one. Even if, if you could place the blame on the men from Greenwood, the response is still beyond insane. You started a fight, so we murdered and burned your whole community down. That's like if I punched you in the gut and then you killed my whole family. The response is ridiculously disproportionate to the initial incident. That being said, we know the massacre can't be blamed on the people of Greenwood, especially not when you examine the events from a wider perspective. With all the information we have now, all the accounts, the history of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma, frankly, it would be willfully ignorant to point the finger at the victims as being the ones to blame. But, you know, that seems to be a thing that people do, even today. Debates about things like, say, the Me Too movement or the treatment of immigrants being placed in cages or even modern-day racial tensions between police and African Americans. There's this perspective that some people really like to take when it comes to victims of, well, you put yourself in a bad situation and something bad happened. But that is so far beyond bullshit, it would be laughable if it wasn't so horrible. And, again, even if, if someone puts themselves in a bad situation, the resulting harm done to them is not in any way somehow justified in the end. As for the role city officials and the police played in all this, well, again, remember that during the riot, hundreds of aggressive white rioters were deputized and sent out to deal with the situation. But why? Why hundreds of men? Accounts list the numbers being upwards of 500. I mean, a shootout had broken out at the courthouse, and in response, hundreds of men, 
without any consideration of who they might be, were given legal authority? Well, maybe a bit of evidence to shed some light. A few months after the massacre, a Tulsa police officer named Van B. Hurley retired and then gave an accounting of the events to a paper called the Chicago Defender. In his account, Hurley claimed that city officials not only were okay with the all-out invasion and assault of Greenwood, but it actually planned and encouraged it. Hurley stated that the aerial assault using planes was part of the plan, and that these special deputies were told to be very aggressive with Greenwood's residents. And, if there was any resistance, Hurley gave the account that the instructions given to the deputies was to, quote, kill every black son of a bitch they could find, end quote. This does match up with the other account I told you about earlier, where deputies were apparently told to grab a gun and grab a black man. I also mentioned before that Tulsa had thousands of known Klan members, some of whom were city officials and police officers, which should make the case that I may have already beaten into the ground that the hatred of black Tulsans was clear, and it was an easy transition from hatred to harm. Now with all that info, finally... Let's take a look at the actual legal cases that were brought forward. Unfortunately, like most of this story, though, prepare for disappointment. A grand jury was formed in the days after the riot and massacre, which would bring forward 70 indictments. Most of the people to be held in jail were black. Many of the whites were released on bail to await trial for the charges of rioting. The grand jury was given the responsibility of finding out the causes of the events, and, you guessed it, after interviews with witnesses and the collection of evidence, the narrative was still set that the whole ordeal was the fault of the armed men of Greenwood, who showed up at the courthouse to protect Dick Rowland. According to the grand jury's report, the white mob at the courthouse was actually totally peaceful, with no ill intents, and none of them apparently were armed. <laughs> what? I mean, you have to kind of laugh, because otherwise you go completely insane. In fact, and this is the part that really is something else, but one of the root causes of this violent outbreak the grand jury pointed to? Well, that was the growing sentiment amongst black Tulsans that they deserved equal rights and social equality. Yeah, clearly the problem was these people wanting equal rights, not the rampaging racist motherfuckers. The grand jury also pointed to the poor job done by the Tulsa police in handling the crowd outside of the courthouse, I thought they were peaceful, but also in preventing the outright destruction of Greenwood once the violence took place. So, I guess the grand jury got at least something right. But in the end, there were no real consequences for the police. No consequences for the police? <gasps> I'm shocked, I say. Shocked! The fix for this problem? Well, as the grand jury put it, was stricter law enforcement and even more segregation of whites and blacks in Tulsa. There's your solution. More racism! Officials from the state of Oklahoma were not pleased with the grand jury's findings, but didn't really do anything to help things either. 27 more cases were brought forward by the grand jury, but in the end, nobody, yes, nobody, spent time in jail for anything that took place. Cases were all dropped or dismissed by September 1921, especially after Sarah Page, the girl in the elevator, dropped her charges against Dick Rowland. Yeah, the charges that started all of this were dropped by Paige after she wrote a letter declining to take the case further. But, okay, hold on here. What about Dick Rowland? 
You'd think the mob would get the man they came for amidst all the chaos, right? Except, as a riot broke out, there was apparently only a brief moment of a group of men showing interest in getting Roland, but eventually they too went up to the north end of town to take part in the massacre. People legitimately forgot about Dick Roland. The story goes that Sheriff McCullough had Roland escorted out a secret door and then placed in a car to be taken out of town for his protection. But here's the thing. After that, nobody saw Roland again. Charges of rape were filed against him while he was gone. And here's another kicker for you. His appointed lawyer was a known clan member. <laughs> I mean, come on! But there are only small accounts of Roland after these events, and none of them are truly verified. His mother, Damie James, was notified of the case being brought against her son while she was living in a tent after the riot. Some journalists looked into Roland to see what they could find. In one instance, a yearbook from Booker T. Washington High School was apparently found, and in it are a couple of pictures of a man named James Jones, believed to be Roland, who, as I mentioned way back at the start of Part 1, I know, it feels like a billion years ago, but he originally went by the name Jimmy Jones before changing his name. His mother, who passed away in 1972, once claimed in an interview that she had seen her son just one time when he appeared in Tulsa, dirty and much heavier than she remembered him. Roland, shocked by the destruction to the community he grew up in, apparently told her, look at what I've done, and then left and was never seen again. Damie James claimed that her son had written to her a couple of times as well, and indicated that Sarah Page had apparently been slumming it in Kansas City years after the events in Tulsa. Although, again, strong evidence of anything involving Roland and Page after the massacre is flimsy and not verified. As it stands, the common belief is that Roland was swept away in the night and never seen again. All this, everything that happened, all the chaos because of two regular everyday people who were mere blips in history. All right, now we're going to take another break. I know, two breaks. This really is an epic part two of the story. Hell, there was a moment where I even thought about just making it three parts, but honestly, we're in the home stretch now. After the break, we'll get into how Tulsa dealt with the events of the massacre and the decades after, how Tulsa was not an isolated incident in American history, and what lessons there are from all this. Did anyone learn anything? Have we learned anything? We'll try to bring it all together after this. I was going to show them all this time Cause you know I ain't no fool And I don't need no more schooling I was born to just walk the line Alright folks, I felt like I had to give you at least something a little upbeat at some point of this episode. But anyways, here we are, back for the last part of the story. And you know, this has been a long one. It's the longest and most ambitious story I've ever done on this podcast. The most research, the most writing, the most time put into it. And it's been a lot more of a serious story. I know, it's been heavy. But I gotta say, if you're still here, hanging in there, 
Thank you. There's still some show to go, but we're going to make a dead run to the finish now, okay? Anyways, let's take stock of where we're at. Through part one and all of part two so far, we've looked at a mixture of events that set the landscape that this massacre took place in. The complex history of Tulsa and Oklahoma as a whole, we've accounted the breakout of the riot, the massacre that happened as a result, the aftermath, the legal fights, all of it. And what do we have so far? At the start of part one, I said that this was a story of conflicting accounts, and it has been. That it was a story of lies and corruption, which it has been. And that, most importantly, it's a story of narratives, and how history is inextricably linked with the present, which it most certainly is. The Tulsa Massacre was hell on earth. It was described by those who were there as a living nightmare. But again and again, there just doesn't seem to be the right words for it. And maybe my hope was that by telling the story on a larger scale, it would paint a picture of what happened in a way that made a little more sense. At the start of this episode, I even said that I wanted to make sense of the senseless. And yet, after all that we've gone over here, the violence, the rampant racism-fueled murder and destruction, the continued abuse and lies and oppression in the aftermath, all of it, I still don't feel like there's any sense to be made. The Tulsa Massacre is humanity at its worst. And maybe there really is no making sense of the senseless. But there have been some things that are clear takeaways. For one, like I said, the specifics of historical accountings may vary, but when you put all the pieces together, you get a much clearer picture of what happened. Also, how a story is told matters. News outlets played a central role in everything that took place in 1921. And I suppose that even this podcast is a narrative of its own in regards to the events. What kind of narrative have I created here? To be honest, as one person researching and writing over 20,000 words on this subject, I'm not actually sure really what narrative I ended up with. My first goal was to tell the story and maybe just let you decide what it looks like. But I suppose that everyone who tells a story has a little spin of their own. And I know at certain points I've let my own emotions shine through because this is a frustrating story and it's really hard to wrap your head around. But anyways, we still have more to get to here starting with how the city of Tulsa itself dealt with the incident as time went on. Before the break, we touched on the fact that, slowly but surely, Greenwood rebuilt, thanks to the efforts of its own residents, and them alone. Back in Part 1, we touched on the importance of self-sufficiency in the black community before the massacre took place, and in the years after, that idea was only reinforced. The treatment of Greenwood's residents in the aftermath just proved that nothing was going to suddenly get easier and survivors began to believe more firmly in the ideas of taking care of yourself and your community first. But again, how did people move on? How did they process these events? One article I found describes the city's memory of the events in the following years as sort of a, quote, collective amnesia. White Tulsans were anxious to forget and move on, while black Tulsans wanted the same, although for different reasons. Even today, bringing up the massacre in Tulsa can be met with the ideas of, that's ancient history, what's done is done, we just need to move on. I'm guessing those people wouldn't like me very much. And this collective amnesia was much more than just a passing thing. Remember earlier when I said that the newspaper print of the Tulsa Tribune from the day of the massacre went missing? Well, as the years went on, so too did official government documents, investigations, and reports 
there was a concerted effort by white Oklahomans to cover up what happened. What is now known of the massacre and all its details are the result of a painstaking piecemeal investigation by historians and scholars and journalists that literally lasted decades. Everything I was able to put into these episodes is from small bits here and there that were found from about the 1970s right on up to the past year. In Tulsa itself, the massacre was apparently not taught in schools and again was simply not talked about by anyone. Not just a case of collective amnesia, maybe more so a case of collective PTSD. Apparently for decades, people were born, raised, and grew well into adulthood before ever hearing a mention of the massacre. Schools never taught the events, and textbooks often made hardly any mention of it at all. The massacre was in fact not added to the public school curriculum in Oklahoma until less than 10 years ago. And today, some teachers still don't want to teach it, let alone depict the events honestly as a massacre and not simply a riot. Photographs of the events of 1921 were hard to find for years as well until they resurfaced. And just to keep piling on in the oh for fuck's sake category, the photos of burning buildings, of murdered Tulsans and the sheer destruction were found because in the weeks after the burning of Greenwood, some white Tulsans thought that the pictures they took at the scene made wonderful postcards. Nothing like making a couple bucks off the cherished memory of slaughtering a local community of innocent people. But that's what many of the available photos are. Postcards. Some of which were apparently recovered from collections of clan memorabilia. Or, as they're otherwise known, useless piles of shitty garbage. Some of the photos that were recovered contain quaint little notes of commentary, like, quote, running the Negro out of Tulsa, end quote, and little Africa on fire. You know, the usual pea-brained commentary you get from racist, slack-jawed fuck-knuckles. <sighs> I mean, I'm trying not to put my own little spin on things, but come on. You gotta cut me a little slack here, okay? Anyways, what about Greenwood through the decades? How did the community go on? Greenwood, of course, never made it back to the same level of prosperity that it attained before it was burned. But it did remain a centrally black community into the 1960s, when segregation was then made illegal. At that point, the community began to branch out more, and its historically all-black culture dissipated a little bit. Part of the land that made up Greenwood was also part of a mid-20th century attempt at gentrification and the building of a highway right through the area. The community today is still mostly African American, but nothing there is what it once was. Today, the land that Black Wall Street once stood on is a large park with a baseball stadium, and also part of a college campus. Thankfully, though, today there are organizations that promote black entrepreneurship in the community and aim to keep the memory alive of what is now being commonly referred to as the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. The shift from the use of the word riot to the word massacre has been a small but very important step to making sure the story is told the way it should be. The narrative, one that was mostly told for decades by whites who wanted to let bygones be bygones, is now shifting much closer to the reality of what took place. Memorials have been built, and the Greenwood Cultural Center tells the story of Black Wall Street and its destruction. Local efforts are still being made to revitalize the community, and funds are being raised to start more locally owned businesses and conduct repairs on some of the buildings that are already there. But the worry now is that the neighborhood will go the way that many do in other major cities. Gentrification with the paving over of a once-proud community 
and the erasing of a history that is already scarcely remembered as it should be. Locals say they see tourists riding scooters over the memorial plaques placed for where Greenwood's businesses were before they were burned. Murals that honor victims are consistently vandalized, and the changing of the terminology from riot to massacre has even received backlash. People just can't face the reality of their history. At the very least, the memory lives on, which is good, because there are now no living survivors of the massacre, nobody left to tell their story firsthand, which means that the history is now in the hands of the generations that have come after, and at least for now, the spirit of Greenwood still remains. As for Tulsa itself, it's a city that still struggles with its own history. There are still racial tensions, still a divide amongst the communities of who lives where. The past decade has seen multiple incidents involving white police and black residents, similar to a whole lot of cities in America. In 2016, a black man named Terrence Crutcher was killed by a white police officer. Protests broke out, but police quickly kept things calm by being transparent about the video footage and consulting with black community leaders. The officer was charged, but less than a year later, the charges were dropped, as is tradition. In Tulsa, apparently some community members believe that race relations have actually improved over the decades, while others think that hardly anything has changed. In 2012, two men drove into a black neighborhood and shot five people, killing three. One of the men, a white resident, was apparently still enraged that his father had been killed by a black man two years prior and made racist Facebook posts before carrying out the shooting. The city is still segregated, not by law, of course, but even after segregation became illegal over half a century ago, Tulsa's population still pretty much lives along racial lines, with few traveling across the community borders. But is any of this a surprise? One of the points of telling the story was to point out that history just flows together. Year by year, the past leads into the present. Seems kind of obvious when you say it like that, right? There has been no point in the story where any real positive progress has been made. No point in which Tulsa or the state of Oklahoma or, hell, America as a whole has gone and made things right. The massacre only came back into the conversation in the mid-1990s, where, after the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995, which killed almost 170 people, people declared the bombing one of the worst violent incidents in American history. But many in Oklahoma began to recall the Greenwood Massacre, which, of course, had been forgotten about. And after the conversation started again, a local politician secured the funding to build the Greenwood Cultural Center in 1996. The most significant move came a year later in 1997, with the creation of the Oklahoma Commission to Study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. Yes, that is its full name. Its goal was to take a full accounting of the massacre and of what happened. The report that was created in the end was one of the central pieces of research for me in writing these episodes. It's an almost 200-page report filled with detailed accounts from survivors, along with countless documents, photographs, maps, and various other resources. It'll be in the list of sources that I put on the website after the show is released. The commission and the following report were a big part of bringing the story back into public knowledge and reignited the debates on the issue. However, in the wake of the commission's findings, the question was raised again of how to make amends, if that was even possible. How could they make things right? The most common suggestion is for there to be some sort of reparations, 
compensation to the community and to the survivors, or now to the descendants of the survivors, for what took place. Reparations are a really hot-button issue in America, as they always have been, and it's one that typically holds very little support amongst Americans and politicians, and it's almost never taken seriously as a political issue when it gets raised. After the Commission's findings in the late 90s, a movement came about to get reparations for the people of Greenwood. A legal battle ensued, and the case was taken all the way to the United States Supreme Court, where it was dismissed, with the court citing the statute of limitations as the reason why. After almost a century, what justice had been done? Pretty much none. Greenwood, again, is a very different place today, and the people there still have to take it upon themselves to build up their community. Survivors have now passed on. Reparations cases have been dismissed. The only justice now might be, well, the justice of keeping the memory alive, of keeping the narrative of the Tulsa massacre centered on the victims, and hopefully doing a good job of telling their story. I just hope that I've been able to do an R.I. job at it. Now in the present day, remember the accounts that there had been mass graves in the aftermath of the massacre? Well, at this very moment, there is an investigation and a search being conducted for them. Based on the eyewitness accounts, there are certain locations in Tulsa in which people believe there may be mass graves to be found. The latest news on the matter, from the beginning of this month, is that the investigation has identified two locations where radar readings done in the past show irregularities in the soil that are consistent with a long and deep trench having been dug there in the past, and therefore possible mass graves. One in a Tulsa cemetery, which is believed to match up with the account that that local white resident gave of seeing bodies being thrown there when he was a boy, and a second location near the Arkansas River, where bodies were apparently dumped as well. There is approval for an excavation of these sites, and then an archaeological dig to search for potential remains. Currently, there are still some legal and administrative hurdles to clear, but things do appear to be going ahead. Finding proof of these graves would be a big piece of the puzzle in getting an accurate reading of how many lives were lost. It would also add a sense of validity to many of the first-hand accounts. Above all, it would confirm the horrible extent of the Tulsa massacre, and provide a slight sense of closure for the ancestors of those who were killed there. This is something I plan on keeping tabs on, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to provide an update in an episode of this show. The legacy of the Tulsa Massacre is unclear, really. It's still just fighting to be remembered by people today. There are still fierce arguments over the details of what happened, who's to blame, and to many, there's still an argument over why it matters. Remember, ancient history. Can't we just move on? No. Why? Because despite what the courts have said, there's no statute of limitations on learning a lesson. It still matters. It will always matter. What happened before is the basis of what happens today, and there is so much about the events of Tulsa in 1921 that echo through history. For one, it's absolutely not an isolated incident. In fact, it wasn't even the first time that a black community was invaded by a mob of white supremacist assholes. In 1898, in Wilmington, North Carolina, after decades of the city being a majority black city, white supremacists spent decades chipping away at the rule of law circumventing democratic processes to appoint people of like mind in government positions, black residents in Wilmington were economically prosperous. In fact, Wilmington was what Greenwood was, 
only about a decade and a half earlier. And although Wilmington could be its own episode, you'd end up hearing a pretty similar story. After decades of political and economic resentment by whites towards blacks, and with a concerted effort from the white news outlets and various public figures to paint African-American men as sexual deviants and dangerous criminals, a massacre took place here too. Just a side note, a prominent women's rights activist at the time, who actually shares the same last name as me, was one of the strongest voices in declaring that black men were the greatest danger to innocent white women. I don't know her, and she sure as shit ain't from my side of the family tree. I hope. But the pattern of narrative, the same stereotypical nonsense, has always turned up when there's racial violence. It always starts with names and labels, then accusations, then violence, and then, whoops, well, they had it coming. In the massacre of Wilmington, somewhere between 60 and 300 black residents were murdered. Hundreds more ran out of town. Most would never return. Wilmington wasn't the first. Tulsa happened too, and both of those are far from all of it. Rosewood, Florida, 1923, two years after Tulsa, a black man was accused of assaulting a white woman, of which there was zero proof. Like the other massacres, numbers are unclear, but in this case, somewhere between 30 and 150 black residents were murdered. Rosewood, Florida didn't and still doesn't exist after it was burned to the ground. In part one, I mentioned the labor riots in 1919, which took a deadly toll on black men attempting to re-enter the workforce after returning home from war. Truth is, I didn't do it justice, as the events of that year would become known as the Red Summer of 1919, where white supremacist terrorists killed hundreds of black citizens across America, including in Elaine, Arkansas, where between 100 and 250 African Americans were killed. Chicago, a couple dozen more dead after a black boy swam too close to the white part of the local beach. The kid was stoned and drowned, and the riot after lasted 13 days as local police did, well, not much. Washington, D.C., where a black man was accused of assaulting a white woman, as usual. 15 more killed. Longview, Texas, where a riot led to four black men being killed, and then the black neighborhood in town being burned down. Knoxville, Tennessee, seven killed. Omaha, Nebraska, a mob of 10,000 whites attacked a local courthouse in order to capture and then lynch a black man accused of assault on a white woman. That mob, by the way, was commanded by a close friend of the canonized U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. But I'm sure history leaves that part out. That was just the summer of 1919. Detroit, 1943. Labor shortages led to violence in which 34 people, 25 of them black, were killed, mostly at the hands of the police, while hundreds more were injured. Around that same time in Beaumont, Texas, black shipyard workers were attacked after the accusation of a white woman that a black man had assaulted her. 1943 saw race riots happen all across the nation, with blacks accounting for a strong majority of the deaths and injuries. Police almost always did little to stop the violence. I mean, truly, I could go on and on. Tulsa was not an isolated incident, if that isn't clear. By the way, if you never read To Kill a Mockingbird, give it a go. It's a good book. In the decades after, racial violence shifted more to the interactions of communities of color and the police, mostly as a result of the violation of some segregation law or another. The civil rights movement, the unleashing of attack dogs and fire hoses on protesters, Racial violence never stopped. It really just evolved. 
The community of Watts in Los Angeles erupted into racial violence in 1965 after a traffic stop of a black man named Marquette Fry led to a fight and then six days of chaos across the community. The calling of the National Guard, the burning of a heavily African-American neighborhood, and over 30 dead, hundreds more injured. How about the Rodney King beating in L.A. in the 90s and the ensuing riot? Or let's jump closer to today. The strangulation of Eric Garner by the police for selling cigarettes. The murder of Philando Castile at a traffic stop. The killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice, a kid playing with a toy gun. Stephon Clark shot in his grandmother's backyard making a phone call. The phone was apparently a gun to the police. Freddie Gray, arrested so aggressively that while being transported, he slipped into a coma as a result of spinal cord injuries and later died. Gray's death in Baltimore and the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, were both nationally broadcasted stories that led to massive protests and played a big role in the founding of the Black Lives Matter movements. Other incidents did too. Two points to make here. One, again, these are just the well-broadcasted cases. There are so many more incidents and more stories we could dive into for a really long time. And secondly, the numbers on incidents of police violence aren't totally clear because in many parts of the United States, Departments either underreport cases of violence or simply don't report them at all. But why bring these events up? What do they have to do with the story of Tulsa? I know that to criticize law enforcement is something that people don't like, and I get that. I, I really do. It's a really tough job. I would never be able to do it. But you can support people and call them on their bullshit at the same time. It's okay to do both. In fact, it's necessary. And if that's how you feel, you have to realize there are clear problems. In America, a black man is two and a half times more likely to be killed at the hands of police than a white man. Rates of hate crimes and racial violence are currently on the rise. African Americans get sentenced to jail more often and receive harsher prison sentences on average. When it comes to the justice system, almost any statistic you look at, people of color get the raw end of the deal just about every single time. This is what I'm talking about. All these statistics, all the events in American history where blacks are brutalized and murdered exclusively without consequence, these are the patterns you start to recognize when you take a wider view. As for the killing of African Americans by police today, this has a lot to do, just like in all the cases in history, with how they're perceived to begin with. Narrative. It can mean everything. Turn on Fox News in America and watch white people in suits call people of color every name under the sun. Well, every name except the one they're simply not allowed to use anymore. They're not alone. Racially charged news websites have emerged all over the place in the last decade, and they are popular. Breitbart News, a very popular far-right conservative news outlet, once had a black crime section. And whatever part of the internet you frequent, you are never far from racist assholes. Things haven't really changed. And there are plenty of people in positions of power and in government who aren't far off in their viewpoints. Narrative heavily influences how people see the world. And the depiction of black men in media is one of the leading causes of the violence they're on the receiving end of. It's not history repeating but it's hard to ignore the long perspective of it all. Although, ignoring the history is practically a national pastime now. So what's the lesson? Well, to be honest, I hope you've already gathered it. 
Or, well, maybe I've just done a shitty job of telling this huge story. The lesson of Tulsa is that it was never a singular shocking event. It was a story with a century of setup leading in and a century of legacy leading out. And it was almost forgotten by way of attempts to erase it and the trouble locals had in simply facing the truth of it. And of course, narrative. I can't say it enough times. Or, well, maybe I can. But let me ask you this. Over the past, well, I don't know, let's say five years, there's been an increase in the depictions of certain groups as, well, where do we start? Immigrants being called dirty, drug-dealing, crime-infested, rapists, gang members, diseased, violent people, preying on innocent white folks, coming in from shithole countries, stealing jobs, if not stealing in general. But remember, some are still assumed to be good people. Does all this ring a bell for you? White supremacists just misunderstood white people dealing with tough economic times, many of whom are apparently totally fine people. Black communities, though, crime-filled, war zones, dirty, rat-infested, black men, even world-class athletes and respected politicians, nasty, thugs, degenerates, criminals, corrupt, people protesting police violence by simply taking a knee, un-American, traitorous, should lose their jobs and be thrown away for betraying their country. Let me tell you something. I spent a lot of hours writing these two episodes, and I wrote and rewrote and reread, and I've tried to be careful but direct respectful but clear and i've done what i hope is an all right job of choosing my words if i haven't i hope i receive an education on the matter but when you hear people describe these ways wherever these words come from they were chosen carefully if you're a white person in america or hell a white person anywhere in the world and you cannot believe a black man or any person of color would struggle to feel pride for a nation that has continuously shit on them and still does, need I suggest you read a fucking book? This isn't hard. It's actually, I swear, really simple. How groups of people are seen and portrayed is the baseline for how they're treated in a society. It means everything. Media depiction of people of color is hardly better today than it was a 100 years ago. Based on reading century-old news clippings compared with some of the vile horseshit that gets written today... It appears the only thing really different is people are a little more creative with their choice of words. And even now, as it did then, it still leads to violent consequences for the people being portrayed. It leads to resentment, implicit biases, institutional racism, all the way up to the brutalization and sometimes even killing of people based on these preconceived ideas of who they are. It starts with words and labels and perception. These alternate depictions, hell, let's call them alternative facts even, they allow an alternate reality to exist where something terrible happening is really the fault of the victims, who should have known they'd face brutality if they did things like ask for equal rights or for justice to be served. If you need to understand how this all works, start by understanding where it all came from, something that white people, like me, tend to be really bad at. These two episodes were released during Black History Month. That wasn't intentional, just really worked out that way. And there seems to be this thing white people do when it comes to looking at racial history in America, and really anywhere in the world. But, you know, there was slavery, that was like forever ago, and then Rosa Parks sat on a bus and Martin Luther King gave a great speech and everything was healed. The end. White politicians pander for black votes, 
but almost never enact specific policies that actually benefit communities of color. Like always, it usually comes back to people of color having to take care of themselves. Hell, Mike Bloomberg, the billionaire who is currently in the process of trying to buy the American presidency, visited Greenwood not that long ago, one of only two candidates to actually do so, and he acknowledged the events of 1921. And then, just last week, an audio tape surfaced of him describing black men as almost always being the perpetrators of violent criminal acts, justifying his racist policy of stop and frisk while he was the mayor of New York City. Stop and frisk is itself a policing policy used in many American cities with the aim to reduce violence, but ends up overwhelmingly resulting in the targeting of people of color. Look, as a white guy, I admit we tend to do a shitty job of understanding on a basic level the complex racial history of the lands we live in. As a Canadian, I'm as guilty as any. I don't even know the racial history of my own country. And telling the story of Tulsa, no matter how respectful I try, isn't going to absolve me of that. I said it over and over through these two episodes. History and the present are inextricably linked. They share a bond that, no matter how hard you try, can't be broken or rewritten. The memories and accounts vary. Some are contradictory. Some details are disputed. They still are whenever an incident occurs now. We can argue the specifics, and I'm sure a lot of people would love to. But as we pull the lens back, the bottom line of what has taken place is simple. Those underlying patterns become clear. I don't know, man. Honestly, to tell you the truth, I had no idea how to end all this, how to make it relevant to the modern day. What was the whole point of me telling the story? Truthfully, this part, the end, the wrap-up, this is where my whiteness comes through the most. Telling the story of Tulsa started in a place of absolute ignorance, and I wanted to learn all I could and then pass it on to you. Shit, that's the whole point of this show. Because I felt like this was a story worth telling, one that needs to be remembered. Again, there's no survivors left to tell their tale, and they do deserve to be heard. You know, history fades away, and so do the memories of it all. We're moving closer to there being no Holocaust survivors. Will that fade from memory, too? Is that the inevitable effect of history? Maybe not. Because maybe, for the first time, human beings have every piece of history and, fuck, everything right at the touch of a screen that's in their hands all the time. Access has never been better. And there has never been a time where there's been more people telling stories and keeping our collective memory alive. It's strange to think that a few months back, I was just watching a TV show where the very first scene of the show is a recreation of the peak of the Tulsa massacre. First time I saw it, it was just mesmerizing television. But I went back and watched that scene again after almost finishing writing about all this, and it felt different. Honestly, the second time around, I felt crushed by that scene. The details of it popped out a little more. It was something much more real context makes a whole lot of difference. In these few months, I've had the chance to learn about something that I started off feeling literally unbelievable. And now, to me, just feels obvious. Of course it happened. Because the more you get a chance to see that longer view, that pesky historical perspective, the clearer it all is. Oklahoma was a state built on the backs of racist policies that abused non-whites, forced people off their land, or simply destroyed them if they didn't move. Tulsa was a city with a heavy influence of white supremacy, and Greenwood 
was a pillar of black excellence in an America that had never faced its harsh past. Jealousy and indiscriminate hate are vicious traits that human beings can get swept up in. And the massacre in Tulsa is a mixture of so much of the worst of what people can be. The more I read about the Tulsa massacre, its past and its aftermath, the more it struck me. And the more the present-day climate of racism, anti-immigrant sentiments, and the demonization of political opponents, all of it, started to make more sense. These things aren't new. They've just been pulled out of the attic and had the dust blown off them by people who truly believe in their racist ideologies, whether they really know it's racist or not. As you read the news, and especially when you follow politics, there's always a reason behind placing labels on people. More often than not, it makes it easier to accept bad things happening to them. Because, hey, it's not my group. Despite all that, though, I still couldn't figure out what I was really hoping to get from it. To honor the victims, yes. To give a voice to the survivors who no longer have one, absolutely. Although, I don't know what they'd think of a goofy 20-something white Canadian dude telling their story. Those were good reasons, sure. But there was something more that I couldn't quite put my finger on. So I just let it marinate in this crazy brain of mine. And eventually, although even now I'm not totally sure, but... You know, I wanted to make sense of the senseless. I said that at the start. I wanted to understand how this can happen. But that isn't where the real value of it seems to lie. I think the reason this story is valuable is that Tulsa is one of those hard truths. A story that, although being a deep story all on its own, really tells just a piece of an even larger history. And facing those hard truths, like any time in your own personal life when something simply has to be taken head on, they mature you a little more each time. Because those are the moments where you get a glimpse at who you really are. Remembering the Tulsa Massacre, Wilmington, Rosewood, all these stories, all these pieces of this long puzzle we've been putting together for two episodes, it's facing reality. America for decades has been an example of the home of freedom and the American dream, land of milk and honey, all men created equal, all that good stuff. But these stories say something else. They give a more complete depiction of the foundation that modern America is built on. A clearer narrative. Because no matter who you are or what part of the world you live in, if we can't stop to think about what it took to build the world as it is now and process and accept what's happened before, then how can anyone be sure that we'll do any better in the future? This would come off of Archer Street coming up Elgin and like that where they would shoot and they kill quite a few. We were playing and whatnot and it was a lot of people all on the grounds and on the in the house on the floor. Uh, what had happened, the people were running from Greenwood out in the country and they would tell us to stay away from the windows because they were shooting in the windows and things like that. Four men with torches in their hands. These torches were burning. When my mother saw them coming, she says, you get up under the bed, get up under the bed, get up under the bed, and all four of us got up under the bed. I was the last one. He said, please don't burn my house. Don't set my house on fire. 
Well, that was wishful thinking because everything around was burning. And they said, okay. As, they, as we were going away, within five minutes, our house was smoking and blew up now. They took out there like uh, people hate silverware and some few of them hate nice these china dishes and furniture, some, you know, nice things. They took those things out first before they set the houses afar and said they set the curtains afar. And there were airplanes flying in the sky that uh, seemed to have been dropping something down to the houses and setting them on fire. Now, you mentioned that your cousin had a, a cafe on Greenwood. Um, what, what was their name? A Bertha Black. Okay, was their cafe destroyed? Yeah, everything was mostly was destroyed. Were they able to rebuild it? No, they never did rebuild it. It was raining on our roof. And my mother thought it was uh, either airplanes or something from Standpipe Hill, but they were raining on them. So this came and had the children and grown-ups to go to the ballpark, and we were given bread and milk. And uh, I had a playhouse at the time, and I just thought I had a lot of company, and we were playing back and forth. I was a young girl about, about five or six. Well, we walked on down to convention hall, and there they uh, had many people, there thousands of people lined up, and the only way you could be released is that some white employee would would come and vouch for you. We ran in groups, uh, and uh, we'd uh, hide behind uh, trees and things like that, and. Uh, we finally made it out to the Golden Gate Park. That's what it was called at that time. So we decided to try to stick it out, and we did stay. Now many things happened. I was uh, showing lots of discrimination after that, but we stayed on it. At 18, I left and went to California. I went to uh, New Orleans school, and after I finished from Xavier, I went to California and taught school for 30 years. So I stayed in California then. But that about, um, we got out there about 1922 or something mm -hmm. now. And you never came back to Tulsa then? No, I, was lived, I lived in uh, Los Angeles. I was at that time, as I stated before, I hated all white people because uh, that's, that's who was destroying us and doing everything. But I changed, changed that attitude after Mr. Wilcox was so nice. My father had been working for him a long time. He treated him like a real human being. I want to thank you so damn much for making it through these two episodes. I know the second part was a really long one. You're a patient person to have stuck it out with me. And I know there's a lot to take in and a lot to process. It was a pretty heavy story we've told. And I really, truly hope that I've done a good job of telling it. And I hope that you got something out of it. I would really love feedback on these two episodes. I put a ridiculous amount of time into them, so I'd love to know how I can improve. Or... If you have any questions or comments in general, hate mail, whatever you got, reach out. I know that the end there was a little opinionated. It's something that I don't typically do, but honestly, after all the hours and after all the writing and all the research and everything, I just had a lot that I had to get out. And it is what it is. So, again, feedback is welcome. 
You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and at the website, assortedgoodspod.com, where you can also find the long list of sources used to write Part 1 and Part 2, as well as a few YouTube clips in relation to the story that we covered, including the full video of the victims' accounts that I used there at the end of the episode. These episodes are dedicated to the victims of the Tulsa Massacre, their memory, their families, and to the people still fighting to make sure this story gets told the way it should be. Also, to the dedicated and tireless historians, academics, journalists, and researchers who dug through records and accounts for decades to compile every bit of information that I was lucky enough to have access to. I'm just a humble guy trying to pass along a story. Thank you again for listening. Take care of each other out there. God knows we need it. And I will see you next time here on Assorted Goods. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. Cause I don't know what's up there. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. I go to the movie and I go downtown. Somebody keeps telling me, don't. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Then I go to my brother, and I say, brother. Help me, please. But he winds up knocking me back down on my knees. Oh, there have been times that I thought I couldn't last for long. But I know change.